Evening. Uh, we're going to begin our time of worship with a reminder of our great God and His great power and love. So let's stand together for Let the Earth Resound with Songs of Praise.
You'll all be aware that our sister Sue Bradley has been uh, very ill for uh, quite a few months now. Uh, she is in hospital at the moment, and her family have been called in this afternoon to be with her. So we will be uh, praying for Sue in just a moment. But just to say that the Lord has given her the most remarkable gift of assurance during this whole illness that she's been through, that He is with her and that she does not need to be afraid. And this afternoon, she could barely speak at all, but those were the two things that she was able to say. He is with me, and I'm not afraid. So God has given Sue a great gift, and we want to pray for her as she looks forward to meeting her Lord, and we also want to pray for her family that they would, through this, become ready to meet her Lord. So let's pray. Lord God, we praise you as the King immortal, our Father in heaven and our faithful God. We praise you, Jesus the Son, the one who sympathizes with us in our weakness because you humbled yourself to be one of us. We praise you, Holy Spirit, the one sent to comfort us and to apply to us all of the benefits Jesus won for us through his death and resurrection. And we bring to you our dear sister Sue as she looks in these moments with expectation to meeting her Savior face to face. We thank you for taking away her fear of death. We thank you for the amazing assurance you have given her that you are walking with her through this valley of death. Father, in these hours, will you answer Sue's prayers for her family? And this time, that they're with her, will you lead them to trust in her Savior? Father, we also pray for Carol Whitehouse as she has been suffering this week from an infection and now facing chemo again tomorrow. We pray that both Carol and John and the rest of the family will have a similar great assurance of your presence. And for ourselves, we pray that in this time together, that you will refresh and deepen our own trust in you and our own assurance that you are all we need, whatever our situation is, whether it's a dark valley or a high mountain that we're on at the moment. Remind us that in all situations, you are enough for us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through the Psalms of Ascent, we've been listening or, um, uh, each week to a, a version of one of the Psalms. And we're going to do that now. I won't ask you to stand this time because it's not a song that we've um, heard before, I think, or at least not in church. It's a version of Psalm 130, I Will Wait For You.
This afternoon we come back to our series on the Psalms of Ascent, a group of 15 Psalms used by pilgrims on their way to Jerusalem. These are ancient songs, but they're also timeless songs, as maybe we felt and appreciated just while we listened to that last version of Psalm 130. These songs are just as helpful for us modern pilgrims on our way to the new Jerusalem. Today we're going to look at Psalms 129 to 131. The first two in this group of three focus on things that will happen, and the third psalm in the group deals with something that can happen. So let's read them, starting with Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say, they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. But they have not gained the victory over me. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. But the Lord is righteous. He has cut me free from the cords of the wicked. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof, which withers before it can grow. A reaper cannot fill his hands with it, nor one who gathers fill his arms. May those who pass by not say to them, the blessing of the Lord be on you. We bless you in the name of the Lord. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. This is God's word. And these three songs are here to inject some solid confidence into weary pilgrims. They tell us that the wicked will wither away, the repentant will receive full redemption, and those who wait can learn contentment. Two things that will happen and one thing that can happen. First, Psalm 129 tells us, The wicked will wither away. That's where this psalm ends up. But to start with, the wicked show no signs at all of withering away. 
Look at verse 1 of Psalm 129. They have greatly oppressed me from my youth. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me from my youth. This is presented like it's the experience of an individual. They have greatly oppressed me. But in fact, it's the experience of God's people as a whole. Let Israel say they have greatly oppressed me. Several of the previous Psalms of Ascent have referred to Israel's history of suffering. From their enslavement by the Egyptians to the enemies who tried to wipe them out after they left Egypt, there's been a long list of oppressors. And verse 3 gives a vivid picture of Israel's experience under that oppression. Plowmen have plowed my back and made their furrows long. God's people are, are like a person forced to the ground whose back is then plowed like a field, torn open in huge gashes. One commentator says, the history of Israel is one single passion narrative. We normally speak about the passion of Christ, of course, meaning his suffering on the way to the cross and then on the cross itself. And even as verse 3 describes the sufferings of Israel, it is pointing us forward to the sufferings of Christ. The prophet Isaiah looked ahead to the coming servant of the Lord who would say, I offered my back to those who beat me. And the New Testament Gospels describe how Jesus' back was literally torn up as he was flogged with a leather whip tipped with pieces of bone. So the sufferings of, God, old of God's Old Testament people foreshadowed the suffering of Christ, but it's also true that Christ's suffering set the pattern for his New Testament people, the church. The New Testament doesn't sugarcoat things in terms of what the church can expect. It tells us we will follow in Christ's steps. Not that we're going to die for the sin of the world, that was a once-for-all-time act of suffering. But the church will follow our Savior by experiencing oppression for His sake. And that is exactly how the history of the church has played out. Here in the UK, we've had an unusual situation for many generations. The church has gone through very little suffering in this country. But around the world, the church has been greatly oppressed. The picture of a human back being plowed like a field has been an appropriate picture of the church's suffering as she follows in the steps of her suffering Savior. But it's also true, as verse 2 says, that the oppressors of God's people have not gained the victory. Time after time, as verse 4 says, the Lord has cut his people free from the cords of the wicked. And the second half, half of this psalm looks to the time when the wicked won't even be there anymore. The days of God's people being freed from oppression will be over because the wicked will have withered away for good. Verses 5 to, five to 8 have been translated here as a prayer. May all who hate Zion be turned back in shame. May they be like grass on the roof. But this is a case of praying in line with what God has promised to do. He has committed 
to turn those who hate Zion back in shame. He is committed to make them wither like grass on a roof. So when God's people pray for this, they pray knowing God will do it. One day in his own time, those who oppress God's people will come to nothing. And it's not just their efforts that will come to nothing. They themselves will come to nothing. It's the enemies of Zion themselves who verse 6 compares to grass on the roof which withers before it can grow. That's the second vivid picture of the psalm. The first one was God's people being plowed up by oppression. Here, the oppressors are pictured as being no more substantial than grass that withers away. Apparently, roofs in Israel were generally made of soil, and so grass seed might well blow onto the roof and begin to sprout. But it couldn't flourish in the long term. It couldn't establish proper roots. So verse 7 points out, if a reaper climbed onto the roof hoping for an armful of grass, he would be badly disappointed. Verse 8 mentions the traditional greeting that passers-by gave to congratulate those who are reaping a harvest. The blessing of the Lord be on you. But no one's going to say that to the person trying to reap on a rooftop because he has a hopeless task looking for a harvest there. And the point of the picture is that the wicked will ultimately be no more lasting and no more significant than those meager blades of grass that sprout momentarily on the rooftop. Yes, they may have their day oppressing and plowing up God's people, just like they oppressed and plowed up our Savior. The enemies of God's people might seem irresistibly powerful. It might seem inevitable that they will gain the victory. But all of their efforts will prove to be futile in the end. Their destiny is not to thrive. It is to wither away. So as you and I see the church of Jesus Christ suffering like Israel suffered from enemies who wanted to destroy her. As we see that, maybe even as we experience a little bit of it ourselves, we can be assured those enemies will ultimately fade and fall like dead grass. Psalm 130 gives us another certainty. It tells us, the repentant will receive full redemption. If we thought there was any arrogance behind the words of Psalm 129, with its talk of the wicked being turned back in shame, if we might have thought that, Psalm 130 shows us there is no arrogance at all from the psalmist. This psalm starts in distress. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. Here's another vivid picture. This pilgrim feels like he's drowning in the depths of the sea, being sucked down and overwhelmed. But overwhelmed by what? What is 
the distress he's drowning in. It's distress over his own sin. That becomes clear in verse 3. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? So there's no encouragement in hearing that the wicked are going to wither away if we know that we ourselves are wicked. And that's what the songwriter recognizes here. His awareness of his own sin overwhelms him. Makes him feel like he's drowning in the depths. And in fact, this applies to all of us. It's not a case of the songwriter being the only rotten apple here. The whole barrel is in the same condition as he is. When verse 3 asks, if the Lord kept a record of sins, who could stand? The answer is, none of us could stand. None of us could pass the test. None of us would safely pass through God's judgment and be accepted in His presence on the other side of that judgment. Our sin is that serious. Of course, we like to downplay it, but the Bible doesn't downplay it. Alec Motcher sums up the Bible's teaching like this. God hates sin and is angered ceaselessly by it. This is the problem, not sin as a nuisance and blight within human life and relationships, but sin as the object of divine detestation, anger, and hostility. Sin is always first and foremost against God, whoever else we might hurt, whoever else might be affected by it. It is primarily an offense against our holy God. And when that truth dawns on you and me, it is devastating. We do feel like we're drowning in the depths because there's nothing we can do to erase our sin. There must be a million and one self-help books available today. But not a single one of those books can tell you how to self-help yourself out of the guilt and consequences of your sin. Only God can resolve that particular issue. And if He chose to keep a record of sins, if He went by the book and held us accountable for those sins, none of us would stand. We would fall eternally into a bottomless pit of punishment. And that is why our sin takes us out of the realm of self-help and into the realm of God's mercy. His mercy is our only hope. Verse 2 acknowledges that this is not a prayer of self-justification. There's nothing here about trying to convince God and ourselves that we're not that bad, really. No, this is a true prayer of repentance. It is prayed in the realization that only God's mercy can help us. And then look at the good news verse 4 has for drowning men and women. When we cry out to the Lord for mercy, we find that with you, Lord, there is forgiveness. So that we can with reverence serve you. Literally, so that you may be feared. 
God's forgiveness doesn't lead us to take sin lightly or take God lightly. When we grasp the reality of our sin and the glorious good news of forgiveness, it does produce a reverence in us. A respect for God's authority. That this perfectly holy being would take his record of our sins and tear it up. That's what his forgiveness means. It means he chooses to forget our sin. The prophet Micah says the Lord hurls our sins into the depths of the sea. That's a way of saying he's finished with them. They're gone. And it's a very nice resolution to the situation of verse 1 here in our psalm. When we cry to the Lord out of the depths, he rescues us from the depths, and then he throws our sins back in. Let them sink in the depths while we stand in his presence, forgiven and accepted. In the Old Testament, the way an Israelite would seek God's mercy was to bring an animal sacrifice. Now, those sacrifices were never intended to be mechanical rituals. They were pleas for mercy. When the sacrifices functioned as they were supposed to, the animal was offered as an expression of a heart that was crying out for mercy. Please, Lord, accept this death instead of my own. And when that was the case, when the offering was made with that attitude, God did forgive. And yet the New Testament tells us He forgave those Old Testament believers not actually on the basis of those bulls and lambs that were offered on the altar. They were just signs that were pointing forward. God actually forgave on the basis of a sacrifice that was still to come at that stage. When his son Jesus offered himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So for Old Testament believers and for us, God's merciful forgiveness comes only through Jesus. So if you've begun to have a sense of the reality of your guilt before God, Jesus is the solution. But you'll notice there is a second half to this psalm. And the second half of the psalm is all about waiting and hoping, which begs the question, if an Old Testament Israelite could bring an animal sacrifice and receive God's mercy, and if we can have assurance of forgiveness here and now because of Jesus' sacrifice, then what is there to wait and hope for? Well, the answer is forgiveness doesn't mean that temptation goes away. It doesn't mean we become sin-proof people. When God lifts us out of the depths and forgives us, we find ourselves with a serious responsibility to withstand sin and temptation. And that is where the waiting and hoping come in. Look at verse 5. I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in His word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Here's another one of those pictures that say so much. 
A watchman on the walls of the city has been there on duty all night long. He's been on high alert through all those hours of darkness, knowing that attacks could come at any moment of the night. They could come from any direction in the night. And it's good that he's on high alert. That's his job. Just like our job is to be alert to temptation, to be on guard and wearing the full armor of God so we can take our stand against the devil's schemes. It's right for us to be always alert. It's our job. But don't we long for a day when we can stand down? When we no longer have to watch for attack because temptation and sin are finally a thing of the past. Aren't we like one of these watchmen in the city walls just waiting for the morning? Because the morning means the end of a long shift. In verses 5 and 6, the songwriter said he's waiting for the Lord to fulfill his word. That's the thing he's waiting for, like a watchman waits for the morning. But what word of the Lord are we talking about here? What has the Lord promised to do that makes us so expectant? Well, look at verse 7. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. We could say that the first four verses of this psalm got us halfway. They got us to the point of being lifted out of the depths, forgiven and accepted by God. Now these last verses get us the rest of the way. They promise a day when not only the guilt of our sin is gone, but also our susceptibility to temptation. And also the ugly consequences of sin that are still such a blight on our lives. They'll be gone too one day. I think we all know that even when our sins have been forgiven by God, when He has thrown the guilt of them into the depths, isn't it true that their impact on our lives can still rumble on day to day in broken relationships, in circumstances that are disrupted and made to be more burdensome because of past sin? And here we're promised one day those creepers and tentacles of sin those aftershocks of sin, they will be gone too. We will experience full redemption. Not only will the guilt of our sin be gone, but also the whole network of its effects on our lives. Those things that cling around even after forgiveness has come. And every last taste that we have for sin will finally be gone. We won't have to be ready anymore to fight at a moment's notice because some new temptation has presented itself. We can finally stand down like a watchman who's made it through the night. And now the morning has come, the sun has risen, and the darkness is gone. 
Psalm 130 assures us the repentant will receive full redemption. Wait for the Lord. Put your hope in His promise. Full redemption is coming. His eternal city will be a sinless city. Full of sinless people. And as incredible as it seems right now to us, you and I will be part of that. We who are forgiven now through the work of Christ, one day we will be made perfect through the work of Christ. So far we've heard about two things that will happen. The wicked will wither away. The repentant will receive full redemption. Our third psalm tells us about one thing that can happen. Having just heard about waiting for the Lord and His full redemption, now we're told those who wait can learn contentment. We've just heard ourselves compared to watchmen on the alert. This psalm tells us it is possible to be alert in that way and at the same time to be composed, content, and not frantic with anxiety. The reason the previous two Psalms dealt with things that will happen is because they are things the Lord will do. He will remove the wicked. He will bring full redemption. But this is about something you and I do. And so it is not as certain as what the Lord will do. But it can happen. Look what Psalm 131 says. My heart is not proud, Lord. My eyes are not haughty. I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me, but I have calmed and quietened myself. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. In verse 1, David, and he is the songwriter this time, David tells us about things that are not true for him. We learn in verse 2, these things could very well be true for him. It has taken a conscious, purposeful process for David to set these things aside. We'll get to that process in a moment. But verse 1 gives us the result. My heart is not proud, Lord, my eyes are not haughty. The proud person has a high opinion of him or herself. The person with haughty eyes looks down on others. So the two attitudes actually go together. And what they produce is a person who is discontented. When we have a proud heart and haughty eyes, we're always comparing ourselves with others. Am I doing better than him? Am I ahead of her? And that leads to constant competition. What do I need to do to get ahead? And once I'm ahead, can I manage to stay ahead? That kind of preoccupation with ourselves and our performance in relation to other people, it produces a whole lot of noise and anxiety in our heart. We obsess about how we're doing and we panic about how well others are doing. Do you ever feel that kind of noise? 
blaring away inside you? Anxiety about how you're doing, how you're measuring up? G.K. Chesterton said that living with a proud heart is like being trapped in a tiny theater in which your own little plot is always being played. Pride makes our world smaller, makes it very one-dimensional. It makes it hard to actually pay attention to others beyond comparing yourself to them. And social media makes it very easy to get locked in that little world where comparison with others is just about all that goes on. And sometimes, of course, we try to convince ourselves and others we don't have a proud heart and haughty eyes. And we do that by saying negative things about ourselves. I'm stupid. I'm no good at anything. I'm ugly. Nobody likes me. I can't do anything right. But really, doing ourselves down all the time is no improvement on talking ourselves up all the time. We're still fixating on ourselves and how we're measuring up or failing to measure up. We still have a proud heart and haughty eyes. It's just a proud heart and haughty eyes that are disappointed in how things are turning out. Before we get to the real solution to this discontentment, verse 1 also says, I do not concern myself with great matters or things too wonderful for me. And here David is not saying, I'm I'm just apathetic, I'm listless, I don't care, I'm not bothered. This is not about opting out of his responsibilities. What David is talking about is giving up his attempts to control the uncontrollable. In Scripture, great matters and wonderful things are what God does. And what he asks of us is to listen to him, to obey him, to live a life of everyday faithfulness in our own little situation. And then the outcomes of our faithfulness, we have to leave those with God. Those are under his control. So we try to witness faithfully. We try to parent carefully. We try to honor our parents. We try to plan wisely. We try to work diligently and study hard and be good stewards of our bodies through attention to diet and exercise. We try to be faithful in all those ways, big and small. But once you and I start thinking that we can guarantee certain outcomes from that faithfulness, that is concerning ourselves with great matters and things that are too wonderful for us. But isn't it true that a lot of our anxiety comes from trying to control those outcomes that are actually beyond our control? Isn't it true that our hearts get discomposed and discontented so often because we try to get our heads around God's plans and His purposes and we really do think we've seen a better way for Him to do things? If only He'd just stop 
and ask our opinion and listen to what we're saying, then he might not foul things up. Trying to figure out God's sovereign plans is concerning ourselves with great matters and things that are just too wonderful for us. And it produces terrible noise and disruption in our hearts as our little minds try to keep up with His perfect mind, as our little hands try to grab the steering wheel of the universe, the steering wheel that only God can manage. In verse 2, David says, I'm not in the grip of all that stuff I mentioned in verse 1. I have calmed and quietened myself. His heart and soul are not blaring with the noise and anxiety that come from pride and haughty eyes and concerning himself with things that are just too wonderful for him. And isn't that the way that we want to be? Don't we want to have a calm and quiet heart? But often, aren't we on edge? We're haunted by failures. We're haunted by regrets. We're in a free fall of anxiety. Well, here in the text, we're given another one of those vivid pictures that we tend to get in these songs. Verse 2 gives us a picture of this quiet heart. Just picture it. I am like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child, I am content. When an infant is not weaned, what's it like when it sits in its mother's lap? It's restless. It's squirmy. It's demanding. It's grasping. Give me the milk I need. Give me it right away. If you don't give it to me now, I'm going to scream and scream until I'm sick. A child who is not weaned has the junior equivalent of our adult anxiety and our adult noisy hearts. But eventually when the child is weaned, it learns to sit quietly in its mother's lap because it has learned that food will be provided. It doesn't need to fuss and grasp. It can just rest with the mother who provides. And David says, I have calmed and quietened myself until my heart is like that. My heart is like a small child sitting quietly on its mother's lap. And isn't that an appealing picture? Wouldn't we like our heart and soul to be like that? Just sitting calmly and quietly, no longer comparing itself with others, no longer trying to do God's job for Him. And the most striking thing in this whole psalm, I think, is the first line of verse 2. I have calmed and quietened myself. God isn't magically going to do it for me. And I will see in a moment, God is central to this process. 
But this is not like the withering of the wicked. It's not like the redemption of the repentant that we heard about in the previous Psalms. Those things are absolutely certain because God will do them. This quietness of heart is a process you and I must take on. One writer says, David has wrestled down his own soul. He has squared up to his soul that is filled with noise, seething with pride, discontented by haughty eyes, obsessing over things that it cannot control. David has squared up to his own soul and he has wrestled it down to the ground until it's quiet and composed within him. Or to use the picture the psalm gives us, David has weaned his soul of its addiction to comparison and getting ahead and grasping after what it wants and fixing everything. Both wrestling and weaning are processes. They're not the work of a moment. Yes, Jesus calmed a storm with just a word, but when it comes to the storm in your heart and my heart, you and I have to work at it. We have to learn quietness and stillness of soul. The Apostle Paul knew that. Listen to what he says in his letter to the Philippians. I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content and in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Paul is talking about what, it, what David is talking about. Paul didn't just decide one morning, I'm now going to have a quiet, contented heart. No, he tells us himself, he learned it. He wrestled down his own soul. He weaned his heart off the anxious noise and the discontentment. And I would suggest for Paul, for David, and for you and me, not only is this a process, it's a process we have to repeat. Because our lives get broadsided with new concerns, don't they? Our circumstances take shocking and unexpected new turns. The composure we have learned can be lost so that we need to relearn it. So how do we do that? How do we wrestle our souls down to quietness? When our quietness evaporates and new noise floods into our hearts, how do we wean our hearts back to stillness? Well, verse 3 gives us the answer. Put your hope in the Lord, both now and forevermore. It's the same answer Psalm 130 gave us. When it came to final and full redemption from sin, put your hope in the Lord. And here we're told the way to a contented heart is to put our hope in the Lord. So yes, it is our responsibility to wean our hearts off the proud noise they're addicted to. And we do that by looking up 
hour by hour, day by day. Like a child looks to its mother, knowing she can provide, we look to the sovereign Lord who loves us. The one who stands above all of the noise in our hearts. The one who has all of the great matters in hand. The one who understands all of the things that are way too wonderful for us. We can only calm and quieten our souls when we put our hope in the right place. And honestly, I think we need to begin every single day by doing that. Our hope so easily shifts onto other things. And so Christians through the centuries have found they need to spend some time every single morning reorienting their disoriented hearts. Opening God's word in God's presence and wrestling our souls back down to calmness and quietness at the start of the day. So my advice is don't approach your devotional time as if it's a checklist of tasks that you have to get through, this many chapters to read, this many pages to pray through. Of course, we need to do those things. But the first thing, the main thing that we need each day is to put our hope back where it belongs. And I commend these three psalms as a great way to do that. Because they remind us what God will do. It's absolutely certain he will deal with wickedness. He will bring full redemption to his people. Including you. And so we can put our hope in him. Now and forever. Looking up to him is what calms and quietens our heart. And our last song helps us look up to him together. So stand with me, please, for you alone can rescue. You 
Put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. Amen. God moves in a mysterious way His wonders to perform He plants His footsteps in the sea And rides upon the storm Deep in unfathomable minds of never failing skill He treasures up his bright designs and works his sovereign will Take courage now, you fearful saints The clouds you so much dread Are big with mercy and shall break Your blessings on your head And I will trust The hands that made the starry heavens And I will trust The wounds of Calvary And I will trust Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind the frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. of God.